Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. One, two, three, four, go. I want to have a food court love. So meet me at the Wetzel's Pretzels, girl. I'm coming at you like a hot dog on a stick. So be my Panda Express. <laughs> I'm I'm so incredibly proud to say that I wrote that song with Kion Wolf for a show we did about boy bands. And we thought we would just do that as a joke one time and never use it again. This is the third time we've played this song on the show. So I don't know what that says about us. So we're talking about malls today, hence the song Food Court Love um, by Next in Line was the name of the boy band that we formed for that occasion. So um, – and, and the occasion for talking uh, about malls is largely uh, a book by Alexander Lang, who's going to be on the show today, called Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. I just want to begin by saying that in, I think, 1974, uh, I was doing kind of – I was in college. Uh, this is also by way of saying I therefore didn't really have like a – teenage mall experience. There just was no mall to have a teenage mall experience in. But by 1974, uh, I was doing kind of an internship at a weekly newspaper. Uh, I was in college at the time. Uh, and part of the internship, I spent quite a bit of time with with uh, advertising manager whose name was something like Bob Johnson. Uh, and he was a really smart guy. And just driving around with him, listening to him talk, I just learned all kinds of things. And one of the things he was talking about was what the newly opened West Farms Mall was going to do, uh, which was he was pretty sure destroy street level brick and mortar West Hartford Center type uh, retail as we knew it. Uh, and I mean, this hadn't even really started happening yet, but he already could see what was going to happen. And he was essentially correct for quite a while. West Hartford Center, which had been a vibrant, thriving place with five and tens and hardware stores and bookstores and all kinds of stores um, and, and a few little cafes and restaurants. It went dead. It was a ghost town. Uh, and a lot of places closed up because the mall really did suck the life right out of them. Then West Hartford Center, the West Hartford town elders, they actually the biggest change, I think, was that they approved a zoning change that made it much easier to have alfresco dining. Uh, in in West Hartford Center, alfresco dining obviously is something you cannot have at a mall. So uh, it is turned turned the center around. It became much more of a destination. To this day, it's now a restaurant district. The restaurant district, ironically, has crowded out an awful lot of retail. Uh, but it was absolutely true that the, his Bob Johnson's understanding of the mall was it's going to kill a lot of things that we're very accustomed to. And for a while, uh, that was the case. And then it wasn't. Uh, and malls have gone on a peculiar journey. And Alexandra Lang, who we're going to bring aboard right now, is going to tell you quite a bit about that journey, uh, an architecture and design critic and author of The Design of Childhood. Uh, her new book is Meet Me by the Fountain, as I said, an in inside history of the mall. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. And I love your song. <laughs> <laughs> yes, copies are available for nothing. Um, so... Um, 
Well, maybe one thing, one place to begin is just to say, we talk about the mall like it's kind of this fixed constant, right? A mall. Uh, and, and probably we're picturing the mall that we imprinted on like baby ducks um, at some specific time of our lives. But as you point out, the lives of malls, the incarnations of malls have kind of come in waves and stages, right? I mean, could you sort of walk us through the, the sort of various eras of mallhood? Sure. And yeah, that was one of the most interesting parts of my research, just realizing that the mall has had a lot of incarnations over the years. I mean, the, the mall's origins are really in the 1950s, like the immediate post-war era when the suburbs were booming and people needed a place to go to be together in the suburbs. Um, and the father of the indoor shopping mall was Victor Gruen, um, a Viennese emigre who designed the first indoor shopping mall, Southdale, um, outside Minneapolis. So the first mall had an atrium. It actually had a quote unquote sidewalk cafe in the atrium. And it had two department stores, typically one at each end. So that was the first version of the mall. And then in the 1960s, hundreds of those were built, kind of your basic mall. But by the 1970s, developers started to get more ambitious and they started to build malls that they called things like the Galleria that were two stories, that had skating rinks, that had big glass roofs. Um, and that's also when downtown business owners began to get nervous, as you just described, about how malls were taking away a lot of their business. And a lot of downtowns at the, that point put in pedestrian malls to try to compete um, with the suburban malls. Then the next iteration of them in the 1980s was really led by this architect named John Jurdy, who designed the Mall of America. And he was the one who had the brilliant idea of putting an amusement park in the center of the mall, like no more fountain, uh, no more trees. Let's put a roller coaster in the middle of the mall because he really thought people were getting tired of going to the mall to shop. And if you turned it into this family entertainment center, um, it would be exciting again. It, it almost became like you could sort of put this, uh, put, put together the sentence, it would be impossible to put a blank in a mall. And then they, they just filled in that blank with every single thing and they really did it. It would be impossible to put a ski slope in a mall. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I've actually visited the ski slope in the American Dream Mall in New Jersey. And I'd like to say you have to see it to believe it, but I even really couldn't believe it when I was standing there in the snow in May. So, yeah, there's a, a lot of different things, but let's sort of go back to the beginning, too, because a couple of important yeah. things. So what malls essentially competed with, and there's a term in your book, the Gruen transfer, uh, was uh, an experience that I am old enough to remember pretty vividly, which was the really highly distinguished department store, whether it's Wanamaker's or Macy's or Gimbel's. Here in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, it was a place called G. Fox. It was presided over by this fascinating matriarch, Beatrice Fox Auerbach, always referred to as Mrs. Auerbach. And, and it was this place where you could go and kind of spend the day. There were, it was you know, a pretty nice place to eat in it and kind of less nice cafeteria place to eat in it. Uh, and it was beautiful. And there were all the things that you write about, pneumatic tubes and <laughs> really cool stuff like that. Uh, and and it was 
also kind of a culturally unifying thing in some ways. There was a guy named Dick Ballard who was the clothing, the children's clothing buyer for G. Fox. So if you were kind of a middle to upper middle class little boy or girl living in Connecticut in the 50s and 60s, you dressed as, you dressed the way that Dick Ballard thought children should dress. I mean, it was like that. So you had these things that were really just so iconic and almost kind of defining of the places that they were. And, and Gruen's thought was, how do we take all of that and stick it inside a bigger thing, right? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, I mean, you're absolutely right. Those original kind of turn of the century, early 20th century department stores were incredibly beautiful, kind of architecturally, design-wise, fashion-wise. And um, they were also real power players in their cities, like the, the Fox family um, and you know other families, you know, gave to the museums, gave to the symphonies. They had like a lot of public presence. But those department store owners saw in the 1950s that their clientele was increasingly living in the suburbs and they were afraid that they wouldn't come back down to shop. And so they kind of knew in the back of their heads, okay, we're going to cannibalize our business, but they also felt like they had no choice. Um, so we, they decided to partner with developers to build generally smaller branches of the department stores out in the suburbs. And a lot of the civic functions that the department stores had, like the restaurants, um, like the central atriums where people could sit down and chat, like those got kind of farmed out into the body of the mall rather than being in the body of the department store. Right. And so, you know, those older kind of family owned big department stores, as you say, they were power players in the community. They were cultural benefactors. They caused a certain amount of havoc, too. Mrs. Auerbach famously probably rearranged I-84 and I-91 so that traffic would have to go off the highway past her store. Uh, they weren't always great. But we went from does Macy's tell Gimbel's to does Simon Property Group tell General Growth Properties? You know, we went from names that you could recognize that belong to families to these kind of conglomerates. Uh, I think one point that you've made is one of the problems with uh, adaptive reuse of malls now is that sometimes they aren't owned just by one entity. The, the owner slash seller isn't just one thing. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Both department stores and mall companies have gone through like tremendous amounts of consolidation. And many of the malls, in fact, are now owned by real estate trusts that have nothing to do with the particular locality. Um, and yeah, you're right. The underlying ownership structure of malls can be incredibly complicated because one person will own the mall proper and all the boutique spaces. And then each of the anchor department stores can own the land underneath their department store and that part of the building. So if you're starting to think about adaptive reuse, people have to negotiate with multiple entities who may have different priorities for their space. So reading your book, I was also thinking about there are other places in the world where this is all kind of handled a little bit differently. And towards the end of the book, by the way, I hope we have time to get to it. You also write about how malls have kind of manifested themselves in places like the Philippines. Uh, but, you know, like if you're in Japan, there are a lot of kind of liminal spaces. Like, am I indoors? Am I outdoors? There's sort of a roof up there. But there's a guy riding a bicycle at 23 miles an hour in my direction. I can't. Am I indoors? Am I outdoors? What's happening right now? But there's a way in which a mall is a different kind of liminal space. It's a liminal space when, and you write about this too. When you're a teenager and you're, you know, let's say you're 14 or something, and you're not really quite ready to be turned loose upon the world, and God knows you don't have a driver's license, and there's all kinds of things that you can't do. But for decades, you could be 
deposited at the mall or get a ride to the mall and then have kind of a, a facsimile of an independent existence there. Say more about that. Yeah, I think teenagers are a really important part of the whole mall story. You said at the beginning that you're the wrong age to have kind of imprinted on a mall as a Mm. teenager. But I think that's part of the reason there's such strong nostalgia for them now and such, you know, great interest in them is because many of us who are kind of 80s babies had like very meaningful, like early um, young adult experiences at malls. And so we did imprint upon them and they gave us this idea of what adult life could be like. They gave us the opportunity to kind of shop for the fashion that would define um, what we wanted to be perceived as as a teenager, shop for the music that, you know, kind of evoked the emotions that we were having. So um, I think the idea that I talk about is the mall as being this kind of starter urban experience for kids. You know, it's safer, it's cleaner. Our parents didn't mind dropping us off there because there's a certain amount of kind of low key surveillance when you're in the mall, but there isn't in a public space. Now that has some drawbacks, but indeed it is this like first taste of freedom for so many young people. Right. You and I have the common ground of having been nerds. Uh, and so <laughs> yes. like your idea of a big forbidden experience was to go to Walden Books and buy some book that your prof- professor of parents didn't necessarily want you to read. You know, but I, I, correct me if I'm wrong about this, Alexandra, but my experience with my son when he was a teenager, and we'd be traveling a couple of times. I let him wander off in a mall in L.A., and he'd come back with an ear piercing or a tattoo. It seemed like maybe that's another thing that kind of went into malls at a certain point, stuff that you could maybe do without parental approval that really might freak your parents out. Yeah. I mean, I, I think teenagers are going to find that wherever they are. So it's yeah. really more about you letting him off the leash than it is about like what happens at the mall proper. Um, but that is like a very normal part of uh, growing up, development, rebellion. Um, You know, my brother is a skateboarder and is much less of a nerd than I am. And I'm sure he skateboarded at the mall, which was absolutely (laughs) not allowed. So yeah, I think, I mean, yes, we can officially disapprove of some of these things, but they're also really important um, that there is this space in between childhood and adulthood to try things out. And, you know, maybe you regret some of it, maybe you don't. So the malls have certain things in common with those old department stores. But to me, I think the other thing that where there's a lot of commonality is the casino in the sense that the casino is kind of engineered for you to lose track of time, to not want to leave the casino, uh, to have all of your needs met so that you won't uh, need uh, won't leave the casino. And malls are kind of like that, too, or they became like that. Right. So if you wanted some sunlight or you wanted to hear a live music act or you wanted you wanted something, the goal of malls seemed to be, oh, well, it's right here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the earliest version of that is what's referred to as the Gruen transfer, which is the moment when you you go to the mall, you have your shopping list, and you start checking things off the list, but then, oh, wait, there's something in the window over there that you want to look at. Um, and, oh, wait, didn't I need to shop for a birthday present? And you kind of lose track of your list, and you start just enjoying the wandering around the mall. And yes, that is where they get you, because now you're going to spend so much more money than you would have otherwise. Right. So, uh, and the other thing was to just to have stuff to do um, to, and yeah. to have ways to see and be seen. For example, one of the defining characteristics of malls, when you when someone pictures a mall, 
I'm, I'm going to make up a st- statistic. 60% of the time they picture an escalator, um, right? Because there's something about an escalator. That's just how you get around in a mall. That's how you change levels. Yeah, yeah. And the escalators are an incredibly important kind of promenade moment in the mall. Like if you think about teen movies, so often the important scene set in a mall is in and around the escalators and the atrium because you can see, you know, your rival coming up the escalator. You can show off your new outfit. It's a real display space um, that's derived from, you know, neoclassical architecture and museums. But here it's put into the mall and it becomes this like central defining space for teenagers to kind of act out their various territorial rivalries, um, which is something I talk about. There's the scene very much like that in Mean Girls where um, Katie, Lindsay Lohan's character talks about the uh, mall and the fountain being like a watering hole for (laughs) some of the African animals that her parents have observed. Right. It would be horrible if some incredibly cynical demagogic politician were to harness that particular capacity in order to introduce himself to the world as a presidential candidate. I hope that never happens. Um, So, um, you know, speaking of politics, there's an interesting area of politics and litigation involving malls, because at a certain point, malls began to supplant what we commonly thought of as public spaces, parks and city squares and town greens and things like that. And then a whole bunch of people started to say, well, if that's the case, why can't I go stand on a box and give my speech about the dangers of water fluoridation? Uh, you know, why can't I circulate a petition to bring back, you know, my favorite television show or, or something like that? And, and there was a tremendous amount of pushback, right? Because a mall isn't really like a town square. It is, as we've been saying, a very carefully engineered and calibrated environment to make you want to do a certain number of things. Yeah, yeah, no, and that was one of the most interesting avenues of my research, just because I wasn't expecting it to be so long and complicated. But basically, starting in 1968, there have been a series of U.S. Supreme Court and then state Supreme Court cases arguing about whether malls were public space. And the first of those cases, um, Logan Valley, was actually decided in the affirmative that malls were public space, and the um, Majority opinion was written by Thurgood Marshall, who said that malls were supplanting downtowns. Sorry, malls were supplanting downtowns. And so if we were to say that you couldn't protest at a mall, you were basically saying that people, you know, couldn't protest, like they couldn't get the crowds that were necessary to make an effective protest. Um, Now, over the years, as the Supreme Court has moved to the right, um, that right has been taken away and eventually um, the whole question was kicked back to the states. So now it's really state by state whether you can publicly protest in a mall or not, like whether that aspect of public life is permitted or not at a mall. Right. So just to give you a chance to have a sip of water, uh, I'm going to talk for just a second and say here, not too far from where I'm sitting is West Farms Mall. I mentioned it at the beginning. I happen to know that your friend Sarah Larson made you look at pictures of gigantic sculptures in West Farms Mall. Um, So um, that West Farms Mall was the subject of one of those fights. And it began, I think, in the early 1980s with a national organization of women. And all they wanted to do was um, have a petition for the ERA. And they like wanted to set up like a card table or something like that. And, and the company, Taubman, that ran the mall, uh, said no and kicked them out. It went to court. Uh, and now eventually, they initially got permission to come in 
on some kind of circumscribed schedule. You can be here at this time, but not that time, and we have to know you're coming and all this kind of stuff. And then, then I think they got more access. And then this would be hilarious if it weren't so dark. The Ku Klux Klan took advantage of this, <laughs> and they showed up with their literature and their pa- well. It's the town green. We're the Ku Klux Klan. You know, we should be able to do this too. So you can sort of almost understand, Alexandra, why if you were in the business of getting people to stick around somewhere. I mean, in a way, first of all, the notion when you think about the mall's, you know, base, uh, the idea that you tell the National Organization of Women to skedaddle is an indication of how desperate for control they were. Telling women to get out of the mall is an indication of how eager they were to be able to control that environment. Right. But that's also like a perfect example of like Thurgood Marshall's point. Like, where would you go to reach the maximum number of women, a card table outside the department store in the mall? So, yeah. So denying um, um, the ERA that option really like cut down on their opportunities to, you know, target their audience. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the things about public space is anyone can protest. So you have to take the good with the bad sometimes and like that is a price to be paid for freedom (laughs) Uh, very well put all right we're going to take a break here we're talking to alexandra lang her book which is terrific by the way it's meet me by the fountain and inside history of the mall i think are you you're coming to the mark twain house pretty soon right I was actually just at the oh, you were there. House. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, you were with my friend Danny Har. Um, exactly. Okay, so uh, sorry we missed promoting that. Then. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We're going to add another guest. We're going to talk about the quote-unquote death of malls. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. So we're going to come back here because there's something wrong with the computer and there's no break and that's just fine. We're with Alexandra Lang. Uh, an architecture and design critic and author of uh, The Design of Childhood. Uh, her new book is Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. Also joining us here uh, is Eric Pearson, uh, uh, the videographer of the YouTube channel Retail Archaeology. Do not start looking at retail archaeology if you are pressed for time because you will probably want to spend a little bit more time than you had planned. At least that's kind of what happened to me. But Alexandra, maybe we could be- begin by saying that the deaths of the mall have been maybe a little bit exaggerated, but they're also real, right? We went to maybe from maybe 2000 at peak mall to we may be sort of finishing out the pandemic around 800. Do those numbers seem about right? 
yeah, that's about right. Or we'll, we'll end up at 800 over the next couple of years. So yeah, malls are dying, but not all malls are dying. Um, and that's part of the point I wanted to make because it's interesting to know which malls are still successful. Um, in general, a lot of times it's the high-end malls, um, the malls that have like a Nordstrom or a Neiman Marcus, a Williams-Sonoma, an Apple store, that part of the mall sector is really doing well. And it's more middle class and lower income malls that have been really hard hit. And more of those I think are the subject of Eric's YouTube channel, which I also have lost a lot of time to. <laughs> yeah, and there's sort of a way in which, in, in terms of the pop culture iconography of the mall, you can sort of see that a little bit too. You know, we went from a time of mall rats and, and just lots of sort of teen movies that took place in malls and Bill and Ted and all this kind of stuff. In fact, Eric knows exactly where the Bill and Ted mall is. Well, maybe we'll get to that. Uh, to a little bit more of a sense of this, there's something kind of fading and ridiculous about this. You've got uh, Paul Bart Mall Cop. But to me, one of the things that I really struck by is as Breaking Bad slash Better Call Saul winds to its conclusion as a franchise, the character of Saul Goodman, uh, played by Bob Odenkirk, has gone from this kind of high-flying life uh, as a as a sort of exaggerated slip-and-fall lawyer to uh, living undercover and working at a Cinnabon in a mall in Nebraska. You know, I think it's in Omaha, Nebraska. You know, and it, this is clearly, it's all shot in black and white. It's just like a dead end. This is where he's wound up and it's not a good feeling. And, and there's maybe a little bit of that feeling about the mall right now. But, but yeah, Eric, I want to get you into this conversation. So what you've started doing is is doing these kind of video essays, I think it would be a good description, of malls that are not necessarily in their death throes. And, and sometimes you've even sort of counter-argued, you know, you've gone into a place that people say is a dead mall and, and argued that it's not really dead. Yeah, so um, I started uh, documenting, um, I started with the mall that I grew up in um, as a kid. It was Fiesta Mall in Mesa, Arizona. And I hadn't been there in many years and, and heard from some friends uh, at the time that it was very empty. Um, and I had never been in a, in a dead mall before. Um, so I figured I would go check it out because I grew up going there. I had a lot of fun, you know, meeting people there as a teenager, getting into a little bit of trouble, things like that. Um, and so I went there one afternoon and was just shocked by what I saw. It was your stereotypical dead mall. And by dead mall, that doesn't mean a mall that has closed. Um, generally, it means a mall that is still open to the public, but there's really not very many stores left in it. There's no foot traffic, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so after I walked around in there for like 10 or 15 minutes, I, you know, decided I'm going to, I'm going to take some pictures of this because I've never seen anything like this. And uh, I ended up turning that into a YouTube video about that mall. And then I started looking into other malls in the Phoenix area and realizing that there were a lot of other ones um, that were dying as well. So I just kind of started, you know, documenting here in Phoenix and then kind of uh, branched out to California, Nevada, stuff, stuff on the West Coast. Um, and uh, to add to uh, your guys' point, it as many dead malls as I've filmed, I've filmed, you know, quite a few what I would call um, surviving and even successful malls. So I think it's an important point to make that, you know, a lot of malls are in trouble, but but not all of them, not yet anyways. You know, Eric, one thing I just picked up kind of organically from your videos, and, and I'm going to ask Alexandra about this too, but let me start with you, is, and I'm, I'm wondering if this is a thing, is that you'll go into one of these malls that maybe has seen better days or isn't really at its at its former peak, 
but you often refer to, well, there's mom and pop stores here. And I'm wondering if that's sort of a transition that you go from it. I mean, one of the objections to malls is it's not locally owned businesses. Uh, it's, you know, it's all chain stores. Uh, you know, there's, there's sort of a lot of local character or serendipity. You're not going to find something you didn't expect to find in terms of a storefront or a place to eat because they're all the same everywhere. But it sounds like maybe in some of these later stages, some of the local folks do get into the mall. Yeah, malls definitely have kind of a life cycle, and and that is a part of their cycle where some of the national chains that you're familiar with, you know, the clothing stores, you know, Hot Topic, things like that, or, or stores like Radio Shack that just really aren't around for the most part anymore, they kind of go away. Uh, the mall owners need to lease that space out, obviously, because they've got their own, um, you know, bills to worry about for the mall. So a lot of times they'll start to lower the rent uh, enough that locally owned businesses can get in there. And in some cases, that seems to even reinvigorate a mall when that happens. Um, a, a good example of that um, is one in, in Phoenix, Desert Sky Mall. It's it's probably mostly made up of local business. I mean, there's some of your national chains like Foot Locker and uh, there's a JCPenney, I believe, there. But in some cases, it does help to reinvigorate the mall, bringing those local businesses in and kind of bringing in the local community back into the mall. It's, it, it doesn't always work, but it can. So, it, it, you know, Alexander, this raises um, a whole series of points. But one of them is, you know, to the extent that it, some of us rebel against the mall, one of the things the mall has a hard time delivering is serendipity, the unexpected. Uh, you go to Newberry Street in Boston or Valencia Street in in, uh, in San Francisco uh, or pick your favorite, you know, shopping district street in a really interesting city. I'm sure there's one in Austin. I don't know the name of it. You know, but you, you go there to be surprised. You, know, you go there to see things that you weren't expecting to find or stores that don't exist anywhere else. And, and I'm wondering if the, the phenomenon that Eric is describing, it at least gives some malls the chance to maybe surprise you a little bit. Not everything uh, is going to be Banana Republic. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with Eric that while people often perceive the coming in of mom and pop stores as a sign of decline, in fact, um, it can be really great, both for the businesses and for the malls. In the book, I talk about kind of a subset of that phenomenon, which is ethnocentric malls, where in suburbs that have really diversified and often like become kind of a majority immigrant suburbs, the malls have, have transformed to really serve um, the people who are now living in the suburbs. So you'll have an Asian mall, or you'll have a Latinx mall, um, or you'll have an African mall. And most of the businesses will be, um, you know, food businesses, clothing businesses, um, and travel businesses aimed at that population. And suddenly there's a reason for lots of people, not just those in the immediate community, to go to that mall because it's really a special place. Right. I love that idea. I'm simultaneously a little worried about it just because it feels like, oh, Chinatown? We don't have Chinatown anymore. We've got that mall over there. That's all, all the Asian stuff went there. Um, but it's still really... Well, let me bring up another thing, and maybe uh, each of you may want to talk about it. But um, Alexander, one another thing that some people think is maybe the sign of a sick mall is when government agencies uh, turn up there, notably the DMV. Um, you know, and, and maybe you can, I mean, to me, that's really appealing. I don't go to malls very much, but if I could solve a couple of other problems that are not shopping problems while I was there, uh, I, <laughs> I might be more, if I could get my blood pressure checked and do my DMV and, and, and maybe get vaccinated for COVID or something, uh, that would be a little bit more attractive. Yeah, I mean, I think those kinds of public functions 
well, actually, they were part of the original makeup of the malls. Some original malls even had churches or kind of community rooms built into them. But putting in medical facilities, putting in government offices, I even got email from um, the public library in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, where they put a really successful branch of the public library at the mall. First, like a mini branch as a trial, and then a much larger branch. And Westfield, which owned the mall, was really welcoming because people would come in and browse the library branch like they used to browse a bookstore. Let's get those nerds back in there. Um, exactly. So um, I want to want you to both talk about this, about the sort of um, adaptive reuse of malls. But um, Eric, there's one rather poignant uh, video in your collection where you're at one of these. It's a, I think it's in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, it's a mall that really is about to close, but not really close. And interestingly, it's going to reopen as an arts academy. Tell me about that. Yeah, so that's uh, Power Square Mall in Mesa, Arizona. And um, that's actually one of my more favorite videos that I've done recently, just because it was nice to cover a mall that, um, again, one that I grew up going to. It, it was an outlet mall, but it was still had some neat stores in it. Um, and it did kind of die over the years. It went through that cycle where they did um, get some more local businesses and there were some antique shops and things and there they were really cool. Um, but yeah, it was uh, since purchased and it's now, um, I believe it's called Lumos Arts Academy. And it's it's a great reuse of the building. It was nice to cover a mall closing that they weren't going to demolish the building. Um, because as we know, you know, malls are huge and it's a pretty big waste of resources to knock something down like that, you know, especially something that big that may have only been there for, for 20 or 30 years. So it was really neat to, to see how they were going to reuse the different parts of the school, like one of the anchor buildings. Um, they moved in there first and were operating the school out of there while they remodeled everything else. But then that was going to become kind of the administration office and everything, that old anchor building. And then the classrooms were going to be built out and all the old mall stores. And they planned on on reusing a lot of the stuff in the mall kind of to, pres to preserve its heritage. Like they had a lot of big uh, potted mall plants and things like that <laughs> that they've kept. Guy, um, a guy on a Segway riding around Boston people around. Yeah, a little uh, hall monitor on a Segway. But yeah, that was really exciting to see that it um, not only the building get reused, but then the um, school kind of paying homage to what the building was. Yeah. And and Alexandra, there's a, a kind of a parallel example. I think it's outside Austin, Texas, right? There's a, a community college that's taken over a quote unquote dead mall. Yeah, it's uh, Austin Community College's Highland Branch took over the Highland Mall, which was one of the first indoor malls built in Austin. And actually, the, the chancellor of the school said something very similar to me just about how the mall kind of had a historic function. You know, people had so many memories of the mall and that they wanted to honor that in the way that they rebuilt it as a community college campus. And I think they saved like a giant fiberglass hot dog from the food court <laughs> that they have in one of the hallways at the mall. And people who are enrolling at the college will stop and take a selfie with the hot dog from the old food court. So, I mean, I love just like that layering of memories and that layering of uses because absolutely in this day and age, we need to be reusing the concrete and steel and you know infrastructure that's already been built out for these malls. Right. I just want to point out that G. Fox, the beautiful Art Deco ornate department store in downtown Hartford has suffered, no, has experienced a different, the same kind of renaissance. It is now a community college. It's some other things too, but it's Capital Community College now. So, um, so yeah, um, 
let's talk about one more thing, Alexander, which because this is also a Connecticut thing. I mean, you know, for the most part, the malls sitting there, as Eric is saying, it's like not a great idea or attractive idea to implode it or whatever you would do. Um, so you want to find some other use for it. But there is some history of using it, turning it into open space or green space. And part of that history is in Meriden, Connecticut. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's a really great project um, called Meriden Green. Uh, basically, in the 1970s, Meriden built a downtown mall in a low-lying area near the highway. And uh, the mall had flooding problems for years, basically because it turned out it was built over wetlands and over a buried creek. So anytime it rained, the water table would rise, the mall would flood. Um, and finally, the city realized that it was never going to be a good place for a building. And so they demolished the mall and they did what's called daylighting of the creek. So now the creek runs through an open public green space that has um, a covered area where there is a farmer's market on the the weekend and then they built some new housing and retail on the upland portion of the mall and there are plans to rebuild a number of public housing developments adjacent to this green so instead of having this sort of flooded building with a defunct department store they have a beautiful downtown green way to go meriden you know eric watching your videos one thing that really jumps out and it's it's there in in alexander's book as well but um is that uh, most of your videos begin with you approaching them all from the outside. And they are they don't even try, right? They don't even try to make the, make the exterior of this building. I mean, when you think of architecture, I think most of us picture the exteriors of buildings uh, and then maybe in a secondary way, think a little bit about the interior. But Eric, I don't know. If, I, I feel like every mall you've ever been to was this sort of featureless, blobby, boxy thing. You know, not not all of them are like that. A lot of them are, but there are a handful. They tend to be more the the out the exteriors of the department stores that are a little bit, you know, fancier and more done up. It just depends on the age. Um, but a lot of buildings that were built in the the seventy and eighties, they do have a little bit of of characters to them. Um, Metro Center Mall in in Phoenix is a good example. Um, the, the mall entrances themselves used to be really cool. And then they um, remodeled it, I think sometime in the late nineties and took a lot of the character away, but the department store buildings that were there still had these big grand entrances and everything. Um, and there's, they're still there to this day that the mall is scheduled to be um, it's closed now and scheduled to be demolished pretty soon. But the, the department stores did used to put a lot of effort um, mm. into their entryways and making them unique and, and beautiful and everything. But it seems like sometime in the early to mid nineties, there was kind of this push to start remodeling and refacing things and, and just making things kind of bland. Well, and, and Alexander, that may also be partly because, you know, when you think about sort of how, I don't know, the value proposition of a mall, I hate that phrase, but you know, it's sort of like, okay, we're going to give you a place to park. We've got lots of parking. Here's a place to park your car. And then our relationship begins when you walk in. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense to, spend a lot of time or thinking or aesthetic work on that, the the exterior, because that's not where the relationship is. Yeah, I mean, in the early days of the mall, some of the initial Victor Gruen design malls in like the late 50s, early 1960s, they would do like fairly elegant entrance, entrances and pergolas and things like that. But the mall owners 
quickly found that it just didn't pay. There was sort of no additional benefit to having a more attractive exterior. Um, and so they began to just spend more money on the interiors, you know, having glass roofs, having elaborate fountains, because the picture people would have in their mind of the mall was not going to be the outside, it was going to be that central atrium moment. Um, and if you look up mall postcards online, which I sometimes like to do because they're really fun, <laughs> you know, half of them will be these really dismal pictures of a mall from the air. It's basically like a beige box in a parking lot. Like, why would you want a postcard of that? And then the other half will be a beautiful spiral staircase or, you know, palm trees under the light or some kind of really cool aviary. A lot of malls used to have aviaries. So it's like, okay, like which of these postcards makes you want to come to the mall? I can't believe Pixar doesn't have a mall bird series. You know, it just feels like it's a natural. Uh, pitch that. Alexandra and Eric, you should pitch that as a joint project. Uh, all right. We've been talking to Eric Pearson, the videographer of the YouTube channel Retail Archaeology, where he visits a lot of malls in various stages of life and death. Uh, and we're going to take a little break here. Alexandra Lang is going to come back and join uh, another guest for a conversation about mall music. We are back. We are talking about malls with Alexandra Lang. Uh, her new book is Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. i got to say a thanks to Kat Pastor, who deals with all kinds of uh, interesting issues as our technical producer and problems not of her making. And she solves them, as usual, uh, with a very cool head and hand. Also, Lily Tyson, who's the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is also the producer of this episode. So b- before we bring in our other guest... Uh, I want to make one point that I didn't have time to make uh, elsewhere, and it's really interesting. So, Alexandra, there are certain artists who, musical artists, who are kind of just inextricably associated with malls. But I really think this is kind of a brilliant thing. Explain what the artist Tiffany, the otherwise possibly easily forgotten artist Tiffany, has done with her association with malls. Well, Tiffany was a teen star in the 1990s, and her producers had the brilliant idea that if you were going to sell a teen star to teens, you couldn't do that at nightclubs, you couldn't do that at concerts because they were too late and too expensive, you had to sell the teen star where the teens were, which was the mall. So Tiffany really kicked off this whole, like, ongoing series of teen stars that performed at malls that used the atrium of the mall like as their stage Um, and I found it really fascinating just to trace that history you know talking about Tiffany, Debbie Gibson, Britney Spears, and then later the stars of Twilight went on a mall tour where basically they sold their signature on posters outside of Hot Topics across the country. All right. So let's do just a real real treat for people. This is actually Tiffany uh, at the Bergen Mall in Paramus, New Jersey, singing perhaps her biggest hit. We we don't have time to play a lot. I know you're very disappointed. So um, 
Now joining us is somebody who has taken the whole idea of mall music and retail music and done something truly fascinating with it, uh, which is to really celebrate it. Michael Bice is a former Gap employee who runs a blog where he collects Gap music playlists. So, Michael Bice, explain... Well, explain better than I just did what it is that you're doing. As a matter of fact, Kat, while Michael's talking, maybe we can switch over. Can we can we hear a little Toto here? Let's do a little Toto just to get us in the mood here. This will be Seaweed. <laughs> it really sounds like it's in the mall, doesn't it? So, Michael, tell us about how this passion was conceived in you. So, Michael Bice, are you there? You might be muted. It muted itself again. I'm back. There you go. Okay. So tell us okay. about, tell us how this Sorry. all gets started. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I worked at Gap uh, from 1992 to 2006. And the second I started working there, I was really impressed with the music. It was very different. It was a, a great mix of music. It wasn't just uh, a bunch of pop songs. Uh, I had worked at Dillard's, which I don't know if there's Dillard's in New England, but um, there they had, you know, the instrumental music that everyone thinks of when they hear music. Um, so it was all kinds of different music, house, acid jazz, R&B, rock, and I really loved the mix. So um, the tapes would come every month, and there were um, <clears throat> four-hour tapes of the music, and there were playlists that came with the artists and the song, and I really enjoyed the music, so I, I started taking the playlists home with me every month after we didn't need them anymore, and um, to start recreating the music on my own in the actual playlist form. So eventually, started on tapes, but I eventually did it on my computer. And um, so that's just, it became one of my big passions to try and recreate the whole tape, the whole CD in its entirety um, for each month that I worked to Gap. You know, I'm sure people say this to you, uh, but even just sort of talking around to people in general about this episode, and I mentioned you and your project, and people who had worked in places like that said, oh my God, if I ever hear that music again, I'm going to blow my brains out. Uh, and it, it just would run kind of continuously if you were working there all day. You'd hear it repeated way too many times. How come that didn't give you PTSD? Well, actually, if you're there for an eight-hour shift, you're only going to hear the song twice in one okay. day, in one shift. <laughs> because um, <laughs> they're four-hour tapes. Um, at, because it was such a mix of music, it was such, you're not hearing the same kind of um, sound going on and on and on. It was so varied, you know, funk and and disco and early 80s. It was all mixed. It was great. Plus, you know, current new songs. And I have talked with hundreds of former Gap employees the last six years I've had the blog. And um, their, their feeling is the actual, the same as mine. It's like, Wow, I remember this. This was the best part of working at Gap. Always looking forward to that next song that you knew you loved. You know, Alexandra, one of the things about Generation Z uh, in particular is they seem to be nostalgic for experiences that they never had. And and part of that is there's even something called mall wave, right? There's a, a kind of new kind of music that approximates the sound of mall music. Yeah, mall wave is a really fascinating YouTube phenomenon where basically people take a song like Toto's Africa, which you're playing now, and they remix it so that it sounds like it's playing in a hollow reverberative space, AKA a mall. And then they slap a picture of a dead mall like on the kind of cover of the YouTube video, and then they put it out there. And as somebody who is old enough to have 
you know, experienced Toto playing in an actual mall, like in my lifetime, I found these um, videos incredibly moving. Like they really take me back to that place in my life. And if you look at the comments underneath a lot of them, it'll just be person after person saying like, I worked in the food court. So like I was always there at 9 p.m. when we locked up and this is exactly what it was like. So it's this amazing combination of the architecture of the mall and this music that's so evocative of the period. Okay, thanks. Thank you. you just put the receipt in the back. Oh, I'm sorry. I bought some jeans while you were talking. Um, <laughs> it just, it just, I got so in the mood to do that. So uh, we just quickly have to say another thing about music at malls, Michael, and, and if this didn't test your patience, then nothing will, is the onset of music, of Christmas music, you know, sometime shortly after Halloween or something. Maybe you can talk a little bit about working in the gap and, and what happens when the Christmas music starts. Was that a good time for you? Actually, at Gap, it was great it, because the music services that we use, um, they had a great mix of music. It wasn't just the same songs that you've heard forever. They, they really would dig deep, get some really old stuff or get some really wild out there stuff. And it's mixed in there with uh, current ho or holiday favorites that everybody knows. So, no. And it really didn't start at Gap until um, the Thanksgiving weekend. Um, but more the longer I worked there... It did start uh, creeping up <laughs> further all the way through November. So it was by the beginning of November, it would uh, holiday music would start. I mean, you know, we're just about out of time, but Alexandra, that's another aspect of the totality of the mall experience, right? At some point for certain people, as I say, we imprint like baby ducks on the experience we're having at a certain time. Christmas and mall is sort of fused in a lot of human consciousnesses. Yeah, actually, it was interesting when I was looking for photos to illustrate the book, a lot of times the first photo that would pop up when I Googled, you know, Google search and images for a mall would be a mall dress for Christmas. So it was the Christmas decorations, it was the music, it was the mall Santa, like the mall took on this whole other life during the holiday season. And that was a time that a lot of malls memorialized in photography. So just very quickly, Michael, because we're almost out of time, the playlist that the playlist that you've been compiling, who, what do people say to you about them? And in other words, to whatever degree people are excited that you do this, what do they say when they describe their excitement? Most of them are saying that they're, oh, I hear that. Uh, most of them are going, um, wow, this is exactly what I, you know, I've been missing. I've been looking for this song for 20 years. I loved it. This was my favorite time in my life. And now I get to listen to it and have some memories of that again. And it's it, basically almost everyone has said um, how much they loved the music from when they were there. And once they find the blog, they're they're super thrilled. All right. J James, uh, excuse me, Michael was getting excited because we're playing James Clark's Blow, yes. up, Blow up a Go-Go, <laughs> which was featured in, in a Gap commercial. This is the music of your life, uh, Michael Bice. Thanks very yeah, much. April for 1999. <laughs> yeah. All right. So how could you forget? So uh, thanks very much for joining us. And Alexandra Lang, uh, what a great guest you've been. The book is Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. It's time for us to say goodbye. Go over to Orange Julius, uh, refresh ourselves a little bit. Uh, but it's been fun. <laughs>